leadership advice for a post-pandemic world. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Anne Hyatt, author, tech industry pioneer, and leadership consultant. Welcome back, Anne. Thanks for having me. You spent time working very closely with some of the big names in tech. Give us a quick summary of your background, if you will. My career in tech started working directly for Jeff Bezos at the foundational years of Amazon. So I worked with him for the three years immediately after finishing my undergrad degree in Seattle. Then I moved to California originally to start a PhD, but from that program, Google recruited me and I spent the next 12 years at Google, first working for Marissa Meyer while she was VP over search products and user experience before she then went on to become CEO of Yahoo. And then for nine and a half years, working directly for Eric Schmidt while he was CEO and then executive chairman. So yeah, baptism by fire for sure. So because of the pandemic, the world is a completely different place than it was even 18 months ago. What issues matter today that maybe didn't matter um, as a foundational a year and a half ago? Yeah, when the pandemic hit last year, I was immediately thrown into crisis mode because in my post-Google life, I started my consultancy firm based in Europe. And then suddenly every single one of my clients, which were at the time on four different continents across, across the globe, they all went into crisis mode at the same time. They had to figure out how to pivot immediately into remote working. How do you um, make progress asynchronously from your team so you don't have unintentional bottlenecks? How do you deal with the mental health issues that all of your employees were facing? And how do you design for motivation and preserving your culture when you're then onboarding someone into your company that you've literally never met? They've never met anyone. So how do you transmit this culture when we're not in the same room together? So those are a lot of the themes that I dealt with with my consulting clients as we were trying to pivot into this new normal. And honestly, coming out, hopefully we're coming out the other side here or in the near future, those have really turned into their best practices. Every single one of my clients actually has come out after 2020 in a much more competitive space than they were before. So it really fast forwarded their learnings in some very significant ways. You're based in Spain now. What are, what are some of the entrepreneurial and maybe leadership differences that you've noticed between European executives and their U.S. counterparts? So in Spain, they kind of look at me like I'm an alien from the future (laughs) because they're really kind of 10 years behind the curve here. Um, But it does give me a competitive advantage, honestly. And then the rest of Europe is less behind the curve. Um, Most of my consulting clients are in the UK, largely because of language, but also because um, they have a really great um, innovative tech sector that's uh, supported by the government. And so that has created a great wave of entrepreneurs. And I actually was really involved with that. My last five years at Google, Eric and I focused mostly on policy of of creating pipeline of additional talent to come into uh, entrepreneurism because we really wanted to support underrepresented entrepreneurs. It shouldn't only exist in Silicon Valley. And so it's fun for me now in my post-Google life to be a recipient of these beautiful, this pipeline of entrepreneurs we were building who are now becoming my clients and I'm really coaching them through. They've got these successful startups that are now becoming scale-ups and they have all the wonderful problems that come with success at scale. So um, for them, they're really facing the issues. The great, the advantages of being a European CEO is you scale with globality in mind already because 
within just, you know, an hour's flight, you can be in a different country with a completely different language and cultural tolerance. Um, whereas Americans don't think that way naturally, because we have to fly for like six plus hours to get out of the country and everyone speaks English anyway. Um, so that's an advantage they have here because they design with um, going global at, at scale from day one. Some of the challenges they face are different than being in the States is there's um, lower tolerance for risk culturally in general, tend to be a little, play it a little bit more safe still. That's definitely changing very quickly. Second is there are opportunities for funding. Funding here is much smaller potatoes and you have to have a lot of proof of concept that Silicon Valley entrepreneurs don't have to have. In Silicon Valley, if you've got a solid idea and a good plan, in theory, you don't have to have launched it or have proof of concept yet, and you can get a significant amount of money. It's really the inverse here. You have to have proof of concept and you have to, uh, and you get these um, investments in smaller doses. And then third is really the infrastructure to support it. The tax incentives haven't caught up here in European policy quite yet, um, that, but that's starting to change, especially in hotspots like London, Paris, and um, a couple cities in Germany. You're seeing some local incentives where if you invest in a startup, there's a lot of um, tax relief for those investors because they're really trying to grow some homegrown talent. So there's pros and cons, but um, in general, there, there definitely are some best practices to work on both continents, but those are some of the differences. Regardless of country, what is a vital performance attribute or, or skill that young engineers or technical professionals overlook early on? I think it's the value of continued curiosity. A lot of us come out of school thinking, oh, real life actually begins now, but the best technologists I know are eternal students. In fact, when Satya Nadella was talking about how he turned around Microsoft's culture, he accredited his success to becoming a major player again by changing the culture from one of know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. And it seems very simple in concept, but that makes all the difference. Um, Eric Schmidt, for example, literally has a plaque on his desk in his office at Google, or did, um, that says, when possible, say yes. And that isn't about overloading yourself or you know overwhelming yourself or not prioritizing your time. What it's actually about is that curiosity. Don't opt out of something just because you wouldn't be the smartest person at that table or you know nothing about that music or you've never been to that country before. It's about staying insatiably curious. And that's often my answer when people ask me, what is the common denominator between these amazing CEOs I've worked for? The first thing I always say is curiosity. One of the things you saw in great leaders was that they hired for potential ability, not current skill set. How did that benefit organizations at that time? Yeah, that is absolutely a pervasive practice in Silicon Valley. And I think a reason why they remain really innovative. Even I, when they when Google was recruiting me out of my PhD program, they were converting me, they were trying to recruit me for a role that didn't have a title. They didn't have a team in mind. They just, the general philosophy of these tech companies is we're gonna hire the smartest people we can find and then we'll be able to teach them to do anything. And so it's kind of crazy and they still do it now. In fact, I was talking to a client today who's trying to do the same. He's trying to recruit somebody, but he doesn't have a job title in mind. That person's just really, really smart and a crazy thinker and out of the box. And he's like, I just want you on my team. You can write your own job description. So it's still happening. But when you, when you think of your employees in that way, instead of hiring for a specific niche down skill set, 
which does has it have its place, of course, in, in long-term growth planning. But if, if you don't think of them inside that box and you give them the parameters to kind of establish their own sandbox, you get sometimes surprise um, skill sets that you didn't even know existed when you allow that to flourish in that kind of creative, creative larger play space. But I, I've seen it work really, really well. But hiring teams is probably the number one indicator of if you're going to have long-term success. And I think just hiring and investing in continually training and hiring people who are ambitious and curious and consistently up-leveling um, is, is a big recipe for success. In fact, Jeff Bezos, when we were finding my replacement, when I was leaving Amazon to go to grad school, I was in a panic mode because like my PhD program was starting on a certain day. I couldn't just extend when we hadn't found my replacement. But um, he, he said, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to panic hire. He said, I'm only going to hire people that I have to hold back, never push forward. And that, it, to me, in a nutshell, is why Amazon's been so successful. You advertise your ability to reverse engineer moonshot goals into strategic, actionable steps across entire organizations. What's the key to accomplishing that? I find that a lot of entrepreneurs don't consistently ask the question of themselves of what are we solving for? What is this dream target? Um, I find it really helpful to think about your 10-year targets and how you're going to measure that. And from that, that's going to inform your daily decisions. Your 10-year target should be directly tied into the individual values of your organization. And those principles should be quoted in every single meeting where decisions are being made. In fact, to this day, you know, I haven't worked at Amazon for 15 years, but to this day, I can still recite, I think, all 14 leadership principles because they were quoted so often in our decision making. And that was very conscious on Jeff's part because he knew as the company was growing, he could not be in every room where decisions were being made, but he needed his voice, his values, his decision making to be represented consistently. So having a, a very clear 10-year target um, reverse engineering that. So down to the, the junior most person in your company should know exactly how their daily tasks are connected into that long-term success for the whole. And when you get that very clear top-down direction and bottom-up freedom of innovation, that's when you stay really competitive and you do things no one's ever done before. My niece, Sophia, has asked me um, a number of times, she's, getting, she's graduating from college, and she is trying to understand how to communicate what she can offer an organization, whether it's as an intern or entry-level position, what would your advice be to a Sophia today in getting in front of hiring authorities and decision makers? Oh, Sophia, I think that's such a smart question. I think you're ahead of the curve by even asking that because a lot of people don't. They feel like they have to prove their value or they have to hit 10 out of 10 on a particular job description. What I would do is outline how that aligns with my long-term growth. And then I would follow that up with asking whoever my manager would be, what are your targets? What are your growth goals? And how, it, how could I help serve that? Because then you create a win-win relationship with that person where your growth ambitions are directly tied to fulfilling their top deliverables, their key priorities. And that's how they start thinking of you a little bit differently. Instead of as this reactive junior person, they now think of you as someone proactive who's looking for a challenge, who understands that being ready for a challenge doesn't mean being ready to be perfect, but it means ready to try and learn really fast and outwork everyone around you. And then it comes, I also think I just said outwork everyone, but I think the other half of that, which is really important is not only outwork everyone, which is something that we can only do when we're 18 and infinite energy, I can't do that now. But when 
really shifting that from the value of you're going to out care everyone. And that's how you start to work smarter and not harder. When you're out caring everyone instead of just outworking them, that's when you're at sitting back and asking the strategy questions of yourself of like, how does this seemingly small task that I've been given tie into my manager's goals or my company's key deliverables? And that really elevates your sights and makes sure you're laser focused in on what really matters and not wasting your time on things that are actually insignificant. And you're inspirational to anybody at any level in their career. And you've got a podcast. Tell us about it. Oh, thank I do. I'm really excited um, to be putting out the second season just came out. And the first season was really interviewing some of the executives who have inspired my career. Those I've worked with, those I have met along the way and um, interviewing them for some of their very best practices that can be applicable to any of us who are trying to be ambitious and curious and make big things happen for us. The second season is a sneak peek into the frequent, most frequently asked questions that I get from my consulting clients, from these CEOs who are in their startup, scale up, or entering legacy phase even. And these are the secrets of their success that are honestly are so foundational that it can be applied to anyone of any career level or ambition. So those are, that's a secret sauce. Now the third um, installment, which will come out later this year, the third season is gonna be around the themes of my book that's coming out later this year, also titled Bet on Yourself. So stay tuned for that. Oh, we will, absolutely. Ann Hyatt, author, tech industry pioneer, and leadership consultant. Thank you so much for joining us. If somebody wants to connect with you, Ann, what's the best way they can do that? I think the best central place to go is my website, which is annhyatt.co. And from there, you can connect with my podcast, with my social media, read some of my free resources, and really connect with a broader community of people who are also curious and ambitious. Thank you so much for your time, Ann. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Tanya. Of course. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.